Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Our call to worship is found in Psalms 18, in the first four verses. And what's interesting is that this is to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hands of all of his enemies and from the hands of Saul. And hence, now we go into verse 1 of Psalms 18, where he says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemy. The cords of death compass me and the torrents of destruction assail me. But he goes on to say, in my distress, I call upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever cried out to him? Well, I pray as you do that you'll see that he is a God that is God that is loving and compassionate and who's a wonderful God. And we're going to lift that up this morning. Father, you are Lord of all heaven and all earth. And I pray that you would just strike our hearts with the immensity of that statement. Father, as our Technology drives us farther out into the reaches of space and brings back these wonderful, beautiful pictures of your creation. Lord, may we see not only how big is our universe, Lord, but even so it says that you measured the span of the universe with your hand, Father. Lord, may we see you as beautiful, as wonderful. Lord, I pray that you would strike our hearts each and every day with your wonders, let us not grow complacent. Let us not grow uh, satisfied with just a little bit of you. But Lord, reveal yourself in a mighty way. Even this morning, as we open up your word, as we sing together, as we pray together, as we rejoice, as we worship and focus on you, as we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep this morning, as we can bring comfort to those who may need it this morning, may we be reminded of how wonderful you are. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. What a wonderful God, is he not? Boy, immense. Think about that. I don't know. I was just reading an article talking about Voyager 1 and 2, and I don't know if you know of those two um, satellites, so to speak, that were sent out back in the 70s. And they're reaching what they say is the edge of our solar system, and now they're they're moving quickly towards a new uh, solar system, and just the immensity of it all. And Scripture says that he measured the universe with the span of his hand, thinking, Jesus, God can do this to all that he's created. Just, it just blows your mind. And how anyone can look at that and say that there is no great designer, no great creator is beyond me. But at least here we can proclaim his name. The world may proclaim something else, but here we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Amen. You know, we've been talking about the gospel quite a bit. And sometimes you may say, boy, that's all we ever talk about is the gospel. But let's not kid ourselves. As Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power and the salvation. So we have a holy God, and we've been talking about the law and all of its perfections and all of its beauty and how it reveals a perfect holy God to us. But yet the law was incapable of making peace with God. In effect, all the wall did was make the gulf even deeper and wider as I realized that there's no way that I could ever attain the law or fulfill the law to be righteous before God. Hence why I think the gospel is so important, why Paul speaks of it, and why we sing of it, why we center all of our service around the presentation of the gospel. The gospel is simply salvation by grace through faith alone. And Father, we come before you in our prayer this morning to thank you for that. The words that you love us sometimes has become so commercial and so general that we've become complacent about its true meaning. 
The fact, Father, that we're actually children of disobedience, we're children of wrath, we're vessels of wrath, we're destined for judgment and death. But yet, Lord, you did love us. And Father, we humbly come before you this morning, desiring to say as a group, as a body, thank you. Thank you for your law that shows us all your perfections and your beauty. And we thank you, Father, for sending your Son to do what we could not do. In that Jesus, in his perfection and his righteousness, obeyed the law perfectly, doing what I could not. And Father, it's only based on the work of Jesus that I could ever stand before you and have you call me friend, have you call me son. Father, I pray that you would shake us to the very core this morning with the powerful implications of the gospel. Let us not take it for granted. Let us not uh, deny its meaning, Lord. Let's not redefine it, Lord. Let's not add to it. But Lord, I pray that you would just shake us again to the very core that we may see who we are and how we stand before you. How our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors stand before you in their need of that gospel. Lord, I pray that you would stir preachers and pastors around the United States, around the world even, and churches to stand up for the gospel, to deny it no longer, to water it down. But Father, we just pray that you would add daily to this church those that are being saved as we are faithful to that gospel. And Lord, I pray that you allow the gospel to live out its very implications for me. And Lord, I pray that you would begin to change my desires to match those of you. Father, again, we thank you humbly for giving that gift to us, one we did not deserve. And Lord, may we continually glorify you for that wonderful gift. In the name of Jesus, we say, amen. What a great God we have. I pray the gospel is becoming more and more clear to you and how powerful it is, and how life-changing it is, and how we have to hold on to that gospel. And we're to cling to that gospel. We're to recognize that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And we've been commanded to accept no substitution as we continue with human validation of the gospel in Galatians chapter 2 as we tackle the first ten verses. And as we preach that gospel, it should come no surprise that when we do so, there's going to be demonic resistance. And as we saw last week, churches and pastors and missionaries, evangelists and saints, we are to expect resistance any time we share the gospel. And all of you know that's been the case many times when sharing it with those that you care about, those that you love. The enemy will use any tactic and any strategy and any weapon at his disposal to try to defeat, destroy, decimate, to disqualify, and cast doubt on those that proclaim the life-giving, transformative power of the gospel. And as we saw last week, Paul is no exception. And once again, he has to defend his ministry to those that he's poured out his life. And to Paul, it's important to protect and defend the integrity of the gospel that we've read about and that we've sung about this morning. It's too precious for him to allow anyone to redefine it and to replace its powerful, life-changing message. In his letter to the Church of Rome, he had written, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both to the Jews and to the Greeks. And obviously that's the contention and the tension that we're feeling in this, cha- in this book. For he goes on to say, For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The theme of today's passage contains further proof that Paul does not live to please people. We saw that in Galatians chapter 1. Verse 10, if you're there, you can turn back to it. When he asked a rhetorical question, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. But if we could call Paul anything, the only thing that would really meet its match is that he was a true servant of God. 
Last week, Paul used his own testimony in his defense, as we saw last week. And this week, he's going to point out to the Galatians the testimony of the apostles in Jerusalem. Before reading today's passage, though, I want to look at the cast of characters. There's Paul and Barnabas, Titus, and then what we call the pillars of the church, or those who seem influential with Cephas, John, and James. First off, we know who Paul is. We've explored who he is through 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and now Galatians. But I want to share with you real quick is Barnabas. Barnabas is a name most of you have heard. Uh, He was an early partner with Paul. His real name was Joseph. But the apostles and those in ministry called him Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. He was one of those guys that just seemed to be able to light up a room when he came in. He was the guy that when he came in, he would be the one that would be there and say, how are you doing? I just want to know I'm I'm praying for you. He had a way of encouraging. You have people in that life, you, you know, there's some people that come in and they suck all the life out of you. Do you know that type of people? Some of you might be married to that person and you're elbowing them right now. Don't do that. We don't want to know that. But then there are people that as soon as you see them, there's something about their facial expressions that just seem to lift your spirit. Do you have people like that in your life? Well, that's the type of people we have. That's Barnabas. He's a son of encouragement. He had sold a field that he had owned early in the church and gave the money to the church so that the church could feed the poor. But he also had spoke up on Paul's behalf early in Paul's ministry, a few years after he had received Christ. And he had come and spoke on Paul's behalf before the apostles and testified to Paul's true conversion. He was the one, again, who came and encouraged Paul. Continue with it. Yes, you have a bad reputation, but God has called you for something special. He also had a central role in bringing Paul to the church in Antioch, which was exploding. And is the place where we first hear the term Christians. He was also, along with Paul, the first missionary of the New Testament church. Barnabas was a man that you wanted to be with. We also will explore a new man, another one that you probably have heard of, Titus. There's a book named Titus. Titus was a Gentile co-worker of Paul, and he was primarily used in difficult situations. As Paul would begin churches, he would become aware of him. This church was struggling here. This church was struggling over there. Paul was the go-to man. He was the Christian mechanic. We saw him in 2 Corinthians when Paul sends him there to help with the church. We also see that he goes to Crete, set up elders among a people that Paul says were liars. A difficult church. Titus was your man. You know what? I'm praying for a few Tituses in this church. We need some Barnabases and we need some Titus. Maybe that's your gifting and you just need to let us know. As God gives the church the spiritual gifts that we need. And let me give you, this is another, this is free by the way, I'm not going to charge you for this part, is we're wanting you to get into your spiritual gift. If you're not serving today in your spiritual gift, you need to get involved. There's none of you should be just sitting around being a spectator in the house of God, in the community of God. But that's not what a Christian's called to do. If you're not part of the body, you're outside the part of the body. And I believe a Christian is part of that body. But he also played a major role in Corinth, as I shared earlier. And also a letter was written to Titus, which we see in the New Testament, was written to him concerning church life. And we recognize how we're to live life, how we're to organize, how we're to live, how we're to encourage each other. Cephas, by the way, many of you are going to know, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, the Apostle Peter. John the Apostle, who we'll look at, obviously, many of you know John the Apostle. He is the writer of at least five books of the Bible. If I get my count right, I may be off one. But I believe he wrote, he wrote, he wrote uh, four books of the Bible. Or five, I'm sorry, it is five. I did miscount. I forgot Revelation. But he also was uh, the apostle, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then he's also going to introduce us to James, the brother of Jesus. So, Father, as we come and we prepare our hearts to read this section of Scripture, many times we can look at this and say, well, this is a quaint historical record of something that really has nothing to do with me today. But, Lord, that can be further from the truth because your word is inspired and written by you. And its purpose is to reveal to us all that we need that pertains to life and godliness. Lord, it's good for our instruction, for our rebuke, for our challenge. And, Lord, I pray that you now just work within our hearts. Lord, speak through me. Lord, I pray that you would make clear what is your word and what's my opinion. 
let us set one aside and exalt it and take the other one and put it to a matter of good judgment. And Lord, give us discernment to know the difference. And Father, may we get a hold of the gospel. May we become clear of the power of the gospel. And may we just proudly hold it up as our banner. We ask for this in your name. Amen. Paul's defense is going to continue here in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 1, he had given his own testimony, how he says, I did not get my gospel, my message, my ministry from the apostles. I did not see them until three years afterwards. I received my gospel, the message that I am not ashamed of, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. I received that by a personal testimony, a personal revelation from Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. And so we looked at that last week. Now he's going to switch gears and he's going to say, I did get some human validation. And here's the testimony and the story of that. And that's where we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 2 in those first 10 verses. The first point I want to make out is Paul presents his message of the gospel to the apostles, starting with verse 1. Then after 14 years, he writes, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seem influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running uh, or excuse me, running or had run, not run in vain. Verse three. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So here we get a glimpse of 14 years after his conversion, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, who were, who were really staying there in Antioch, and they had gone for, for several years out and started several churches. They go to Jerusalem due to a revelation that is not disclosed to the readers. Though many may speculate to that revelation, it does not seem important since it's not revealed to them or to us as we read it. Whatever that revelation might have been, it gives Paul an opportunity for a private meeting with whom we'll discover in a moment is Peter, John, and James. It would have been interesting to be a fly on the moment in that meeting, would it not? Any of you ever think that way, by the way, as you read through history? Boy, I'd like to be the fly on that wall. I mean, that would be amazing. Peter, James, and John, the questions that I would have for them. It would have been interesting. However, all we have is what's recorded for us. Obviously, for Paul, this would have been an opportunity for those in Jerusalem to receive a report about their ministry, about their message, and about the men, especially as they were the first missionaries, and also to continue to give God glory as God is adding the Gentiles to what was essentially at that time a Jewish church. This may have been part of the Council of Jerusalem found in Acts 15, as many of the details seem to correlate. And Paul gives an account of his message that was based on his direct revelation from God as he presents to them, as he says, the gospel. Now this was not in order to confirm what Christ had taught him, but to confirm personally what he had been preaching and teaching. When Paul writes, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, it's not because he has doubts about the revelation from Christ or his message, because obviously he had been preaching it for years, but that he was aware that if he and the apostle disagreed, that would have enormous consequences for his ministry, as these men were very influential, and there would be division in the church, and Paul wanted no part of that. So it's not any doubt of Paul, but obviously to sit down and say, this is what I'm teaching. Here's what I'm preaching. Here's the revelation that I received from God. Paul had been doing this for over 14 years, strong and firm in the gospel. When he goes on to write, when he says that he met privately before those who seemed influential, it wasn't to disregard or to show disrespect to the apostles, but to point out that he was not a 
man-pleaser, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 10. And he wanted to temper the human temptation to make idols out of men who are influential and powerful. And you can imagine James and John and Peter would have been men of great stature and great authority, and people would have looked up to them. You and I understand this because we have the same problem today. As you may remember from our study in Corinthians, many people were boasting of whose ministry they were saved under or baptized under. And as I said before, we do the same thing. Many will claim to be followers of Chuck Smith. We heard many of that this week. Rick Warren or John MacArthur or John Piper, Robert Schuller, and so on and so forth. Yet Paul is more concerned with the gospel people are following rather than the men they are following. And I'll speak more to that later, but that's a very important distinction as we look at what he writes. Many may read this and say, well, see, he says they seem influential. Paul's going in there with an attitude. He has a chip on his shoulder as he goes into this private meeting. There's nothing to be further from that truth. I imagine Paul being a servant of Christ who preached humbleness, practiced humbleness in front of these men. But he came with boldness and courage any time it came to the ministry and to the gospel. And it was while in that meeting, false believers had somehow gained entrance and raised the issue of whether or not Titus, who was a Gentile, who was a Greek, should be circumcised. Paul describes their attendance there as secretly and slipped in, almost like a a snake, clearly stating that he did not believe that they belonged. They professed to be believers, but Paul saw them as false. He considered them to be wolves, as Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote in Jude verse 4, when he said in the early church, certain people have crept in unnoticed ungodly people who pervert the grace of our of our god into sensuality into fleshly types of things and deny our only master and lord jesus christ this is how paul viewed those men and these people are part of the judaizers that paul had accused of infiltrating the church of galatia and preaching a different gospel To the Jews, circumcision, now this is something that you and I have to understand. Because this is a very important issue. It's not one that you and I can say, oh, circumcision, well, you know, that's just a big debate nowadays. You know, you can do it, you can not do it. I mean, it doesn't really have no impact on you and I, and that's true. But to the first century church, this is a very big, not only religious, ethnic issue, but whether or not one would have peace with God. To the Jews, circumcision was required to be part of God's family. And those who refused to be circumcised did not belong to God's people, God's covenant family, but were actually cut off. So this is a very big issue. I want to bring your attention to the monitor. For you may recall as we were going through Genesis chapter 17, and you might remember this is when God made a covenant with Abraham, when he said, I'll be your God and you shall be my people. And he says, and God said to Abraham, you may recall this, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. And then we see what was required. He goes on to say that every male among you shall be circumcised. Who's speaking here, by the way? God. And when God speaks, he's like E.F. Hutton, everyone Better listen. E.F. Hutton, that probably went over many of your head, didn't it? Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Verse 13. But he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money surely shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be what? Cut off from his people. He has broken 
by covenant. So this is a very big issue. This was a big deal. This commandment had been part of the Jewish identity for centuries. These false brothers obviously believed that requiring circumcision and the observance of the law was necessary for salvation. And if they were not to do so, it would put them outside the people of God and those who are redeemed. In other words, they would say, you're not saved. And you can imagine, as they were spreading out wherever Paul had been teaching, and they were bringing this new doctrine, adding on to the gospel, you can imagine how the church would be in turmoil, as Satan would use that to bring doubts to people's minds. I'm sure you yourself struggle each and every time. Anytime you struggle with sin and you write cast doubts in your heart, well, am I really saved? Have you ever struggled with doubts of salvation? I'm sure most of us have, one way or another. And so these people are saying, wait a second, I haven't been keeping the law. I haven't been circumcised. Maybe I'm not saved. That's how Satan works. People do the same thing today when they add things to salvation. These men, though, were sadly mistaken about the new covenant and the purpose of the message of Jesus Christ in the gospel. These false believers, and they were false, they might have professed Christ, but they were not true believers, were enslaved, and they sought to enslave others rather than allow the gospel to free those that were captive in sin. However, Paul gladly tells us that their interruption of his presentation of the gospel and their argument made no headway in the discussion as Paul won the day with salvation is by grace through faith alone. And that's the power of the message. And so as Paul presents his message of the gospel to the apostles, we see a great opportunity for Paul to put this to rest for now and forever. The second thing we see is the response of the apostles as they receive confirmation or they confirm his message. Look at verse 6. Paul goes on to write, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Again, Paul is just making a statement that these really were just men. If they were to deny the gospel, they would be no greater than any other man. They themselves would be accursed. As he says, God shows no partiality. He says, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Paul for his ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul reports that the apostles added nothing to the message of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Amen? There was nothing else they had to do. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to follow the Sabbath laws. They didn't have to follow the dietary laws. They did not have to do any of those things. Now, it doesn't make those things bad or wrong. There seems to be a kind of a current where many people are bringing up those old Jewish dietary laws and says, well, this is a good, healthy way to live and eat. You know, I'm not capable to speak to those things. It may very well be. And there's nothing wrong if you want to eat in that type of way. But he says, these things have no saving qualities in and of themselves. These things are not things that we need to add. They confirm Paul and Barnabas. They confirm the men, the message, and the ministry. Not only did they confirm them, they gave them what's called the right hand of fellowship. Are there any hidden Baptists, any closet Baptists in here? Any of you other than just my family, maybe? Well, for a Baptist, that's a big thing. We always give you the right hand of fellowship. You ever heard that phrase? Hey, brother, let me give you the right hand of fellowship. Now, if you're left-handed, you're just out of luck. You just got to go with the right hand. 
And the right hand in fellowship usually is just a handshake, maybe a pat on the, on the arm, something like that. But we give you the right hand of fellowship. It's an old phrase. John MacArthur writes concerning that phrase, the right hand of fellowship. What in the word is the right hand of fellowship? He writes that in the Near East, the right hand of fellowship represented a solemn vow of friendship. So it was more than just a fist bump. It was more than, hey, you know. It was more than a head nod. But it was something that actually illustrated or demonstrated something real. And that was a solemn vow of friendship and a mark of partnership. This act signified the apostles' recognition of Paul as a teacher of the true gospel and a partner in ministry. So 14 years after Paul is dramatically converted and his life is radically changed and preaching and teaching and seeing God just explode his churches, all those things which which were wonderful signs of God's blessing, he finally receives from Jerusalem the right hand of fellowship and saying, you know what, you're one of us. What you're teaching is great. Keep on, keep on doing it. Keep on. You're on the right track. What's interesting is the apostles responded in two ways. This is not on your screen, but you may want to write it down. You see it very quickly. It says they recognized that the gospel was entrusted by Paul from God. They recognized that the gospel was entrusted to Paul. Just as Peter was entrusted to the gospel by Jesus and says, go to the Jewish people, they say in the same way that Peter was entrusted with the gospel, Paul has something also. He's also has been entrusted with a special ministry. They also recognize that Paul had been endowed by God with a wonderful, amazing grace that seemed to extend beyond the different common grace that God gives. They recognize God's hand on that person. And we as a church do that many times. You do it when you uh, give the right hand of fellowship, so to speak, to your elders and to your deacons and to other leaders and teachers. You recognize that they are marked out by God. And we should be alert for those types of men and women. I'm praying that some of you will be entrusted by God with a special teaching. But let me tell you this. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, all of us have been entrusted with the gospel. But we have to realize that we've been entrusted with something special. And you and I need to hold that, and we need to defend that, we need to set it up. Though they had a difference of calling, Peter was to the Jews, and Paul was to the Gentiles, their message of the gospel is the same, as God was the one who worked through both to accomplish his purpose in salvation. And that's what I pray for the churches around Orange. I pray that we will find other churches that are entrusted with the gospel. And even though they may do it differently, the gospel of salvation by grace or by, through grace, through faith alone, is what holds us dear. And that's the matter of whether or not we can fellowship with the church. Not whether or not they have a band or whether they have a piano or just use an organ. It doesn't matter whether their pastor wears jeans and sandals or whether he's in khakis and a t-shirt. It's about the gospel. We're all entrusted. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, verse 7, we saw that Peter probably did not have to be convinced of this too much. I think he looked at Paul and he realized that Paul was a fellow believer. He was a fellow servant of God. For Paul was not preaching anything different than Peter. And we see this in Acts chapter 15. As Peter stands up among those believers, and he says this about Paul, or about the gospel. He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to Cornelius. Not that Peter's ministry was to the Gentiles, his ministry was to the Jews, but that it was through Peter that for the first time the Gentiles heard the gospel and received the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. 
and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what? By faith, not by works, not by works of the law, but by faith. Now, verse 10, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. What's that yoke? It's the law. Law of circumcision, the law of doing works. He says in verse 11, But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Paul and Peter preach the same message. And he makes that very clear in his defense. He says, you Judaizers, you're coming from Jerusalem. You're preaching and trying to teach all these things, but you're the one in error. You're the one who disagrees with the apostles, not I. Paul ends his record of the meeting with stating that the apostles asked him to remember the poor, which he says was the very thing I was eager to do. And from our study in Corinthians, not too long ago, we remember that Paul had a special heart for the poor, especially those among the Jewish populations. As we see in Acts chapter 11, and you can write these down for a later look, Acts 11, 27-30, Romans chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and 2 Corinthians 8. Paul used his influence and his ministry to collect money from the Gentile churches to help the poor Jewish churches. Paul had a heart for the Jews. So instead of looking at the Judaizers and saying, listen, I'm not preaching a different gospel to these Gentiles. I'm not trying to separate us. I'm not trying to say that the Gentiles are better than you, but we love both Jew and Gentile. The gospel is for both Jew and Gentile. God's saving power is for Jew and Gentile. And not to show you that, but I'll show you by caring and loving you and by showing that they have a debt to you. For it was to the Jews first that Christ came. So as we see, Paul shares the human validation. You want to hear if the apostles agree with me? If you want to know if I'm speaking the right way? All right, here it is. They do. But Paul could have said, you know what, go pound sand. Because I'm preaching when I'm preaching. Because God is using it. Your very life is evidence of the power of the gospel. Don't add anything to it. Cling to it. Don't accept no substitutions. If anyone comes in preaching something different, then let them be accursed. And I want to jump real quickly here to implications for us today. So what does a council meeting over almost 2,000 years ago, what does that have for you and I? Well, I have three points that I think that we can look from this message and see. First, you need to understand, before I go to number one, is that we're susceptible today as the Galatians were in their day in regard to error. Just as they were susceptible to error, the church today. If we were to look through the annals of churches, you see the church is always prone to error. Just reading today in the World Magazine, just looking at the Anglican church and the error that they are just plastering with their ministries. And they're tearing that church up. As you see, the first one is what? Beware of false teachers. We need to beware of false teachers. False teachers who claim to be fellow believers worm their way into Christian organizations, Christian universities, and Christian churches. We can see that as we just see the England churches, as many are being torn apart by the ideas of homosexuality and the ideas of traditional marriages. Christian universities, such as Harvard and Yale, many of you probably know, or maybe you did not know that at one time, Harvard and Yale began as Christian universities. Their charters were to share the gospel, but yet no longer. They're further from the gospel as you can get. I think of the Christian organization like the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, great church organization, right? But during the 70s and 80s, they fought within themselves of whether or not the word of God was true or literal. To them, it could be just a book of fairy tales or a book of suggestions. Even that institution that was a bedrock for hundreds of years, found itself being infiltrated by false teachers. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns his disciples about those false teachers. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, 
but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. He goes on to ask, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? No. Or figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You got that. You understand that. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. He says it a different way. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What is he telling us? There will be false prophets. Even in OBBC, there will be false professing Christians. Those who say they are Christians but are not and find themselves worming their way into areas of influence and begin to change churches. That's how every church has saw their decline. Not from the outside, but from the inside out as they eat their way and they become rotten and decayed. The answer here for that is beware a false teacher is very simple. You and I need to know the gospel. If we're going to cling to it, if we're called not to accept the gospel, then we need to know the gospel. And it's the importance of a true regenerate church membership. We should only allow those into our fellowship, into membership, of those who actually know the gospel, can profess the gospel, and living out the gospel. I know that there in itself can be a tension-filled statement and one that can be an issue. But yet that's what the Bible says. Because there must be a way to determine who are sheep and who are not. Does that mean that we don't let anybody in, that we refuse every? No, not at all. But the Bible has told us not to be judges, but he has told us to be fruit inspectors. We need to discern between those who are truly Christians and those who are false believers. Because they'll come in and they'll eat up and they'll tear up a church. The second thing for us today is we need to understand that the gospel of grace brings true freedom. The gospel of grace brings true freedom while devotion to the law results in continued bondage to sin. It's easy to get our security and our significance from what we do. And wouldn't you agree with me? Would it not be easier in the Christian life if God would just give us some like three easy things that I need to do today and then I can go to bed with an easy conscience, rather than me going and saying, boy, look at the 5,000 things I did wrong today. If all I had to do to be right with God was read my Bible, say a prayer, and love my wife. Okay, that one might be a little bit tough. So let's say I'm nice to my wife, right? Nice to my kids and I don't kick the dog, then I'm okay. And that's how we live our lives. What's that old phrase? Someone help me out. I don't drink, bit, or chew. Nor do I go out with girls who do. Something like that. You know, as long as I do these few things, I'm okay. You and I actually, we're drawn to that. I think why so many people are drawn to the Muslim faith. Why? Because it may be difficult to do, but, but here's the things you need to do. That's why we're drawn to the Catholic faith. Well, there's these sacraments. I just have to do these sacraments. And since I'm not a priest, I can only do five of them. So good, all I do is do five of the seven. I'm okay. We're drawn to works-related obedience. We're drawn to that. Whereas trying to work your way will bring you enslavement. Romans 3.20 warns us that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Not salvation, but knowledge of sin. Paul went on to write in Romans that if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But you and I, this is me speaking, but we know that Abraham wasn't justified by his works. For Paul informs us in the book of Ephesians 2.8, That is, by grace we've been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. The answer, the answer to this danger here is to know that the gospel sets us free from works. The gospel sets us free from works. So you may be struggling with reading your Bible every day. You may be struggling with praying. You may be struggling getting along with your wife or your children. You may be having a tough time at work. But let me tell you, that struggle does not distance you from God. 
in the fact of condemnation. For Romans 8 tells us, for those that are true Christians, that there's no condemnation. And so we're set free from having to try to please God because we cannot un and of our own power. And then the third danger, something we need to watch out for. It says it's important for us to have a proper attitude towards those in authority. It's important to have a proper attitude towards those in authority. And so that's why Paul several different times said, seem influential. Influential, I don't really know. Or these were pillars of the church. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that every person must be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And you and I have authorities, whether it's government authority, family authority, or church authority. God has instituted that authority. Sometimes the authority is godly, many times it is evil. Hence, all authority, I should say, is God. For he's the only one that has power. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy to honor the elders when he writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. He writes to the church that they should be subject or submit themselves humbly to their elders. Many things that people struggle to do, but yet we're to submit and pray for those in authority. We need to be careful in venerating human beings. We have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to set people up in high manners. And you can see these Judaizers, they would set these apostles up. Boy, look at it. There's James and Jude, the brother of Jesus. Look at Peter, the one who was given the keys. Look at John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The one who's taking care of Mary. And even so, we deal with it every day when we work with those from this area in this neighborhood. They venerate Mary to the point she's co-redeemer. We need to realize, again, that's an error. But even we are subject to the same thing. It doesn't matter whether they are popes or presidents, preachers, prophet makers, pop stars, or public personalities. God is no respecter of persons. We should be careful how we view people. It's important for us to have the proper attitude towards those in authority. And Paul establishes that or practices that as we saw. The answer to this danger is to know that the gospel and the word of God is our final authority. Let me tell you, if there ever comes a time when I start adding or subtracting to this gospel, then I cease to be your pastor and you need to boot me out. You need to cling to the gospel. The gospel and the word of God is our final authority. Now there is a way in which we have to come and say, okay, what does the Bible say? There is a sense in which we as humans have to come in our fallible minds and sinful hearts and try to address it. But we need to be careful. For one man does not speak for God. Some of you may ask, why all this emphasis on the gospel? You may be getting tired of it. Rob, you've been speaking on the gospel in Sunday school and small groups. Let's get over it. Why don't you give us something that I can use at my home or in my work or my marriage or my family? Give me something practical. Can't you tell me how to be a better husband? Can't you tell me how to be a better wife? Can't you give me three ways to make my kids obey me? Four ways to make uh, my employees do what I want them to do? I mean, to be honest, that's probably what you're going to find in most churches today. Instead of the gospel, you'll find how-to messages. And I don't think there's anything wrong with you. There's sometimes those are important, those are needed. But really what most people are looking for is things to make them a better person. And maybe that's what you're looking here today. You may be a wife that's saying, Rob, say something that'll make my husband be better. Or a husband is saying, please do something and say something to make my wife love me better. Can't you make something to get my kids to straighten up? Give me something practical. Can't you talk about finances? But here's the problem. For that is a substitute gospel. 
because you have placed you being a better you above what really the gospel is, is focusing and pointing us to the better God and the perfect man. See, that's the gospel. Most churches are trying to teach you how to be a better you, where the Bible says, no, let me show you the better man, the perfect man. That's the error of the false gospel. It's not about making you a better you, but about focusing on the perfect one, Christ, and how he brings us into a peaceful relationship with the Father. You and I, we need a gospel. We need a gospel focus. So we will speak about the gospel. We will preach about the gospel. We will live out the gospel. And let me share you, the gospel will make you a better parent. It will make you a better employee. It will make you a better person. But only because Christ comes and does what we cannot be. So I want to challenge you today. Let's continue. The gospel is life-forming, transforming, powerful. Would you accept the gospel today? Hold on to it with dear life, but then share it with someone. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I know we've been harping on it, but that's because that's what your word is. It was obviously important to the church of Galatia. I believe it's important today. As we see the gospel is left discarded on the alleyways and no longer in the front of the churches. Let us not be that type of church. Let me not be that type of pastor. Let us not be that type of community. But let us hold clearly, this is the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith alone. Thank you for bringing us to you. Encourage us this week with the gospel. We pray this. God's people said, Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.